You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I do go on. That's the luxury. When it's a podcast, when you write advice in a column, you can't address the problem from every single angle. The temptation when you have the sort of endless potential space of a podcast and all of the internet to fill up with your words is examining the problem from every possible angle. And I've been challenged by my listeners. Some listeners like it when I go on and on and on about a single question. Some listeners sometimes think I go on too long. And a listener threw down the gauntlet a few years ago and challenged me to do what we called the One Minute Wonder Show, where questions were limited to a minute. My answers, because it's my show, I had two minutes for my answers. Haven't done a One Minute Wonder Show in a while, but we are doing another One Minute Wonder Show today, where I will tackle your questions in two minutes or less, just as I tackled today's intro to today's show in exactly one minute. Dan, pregnancy websites advise that blowing air into the vagina may cause air emboli during pregnancy. Who is blowing air in vaginas? My wife's not pregnant anymore. She wants to know if I should blow air in her vagina. Is that a thing? Why is it on so many pregnancy sites? I don't know who is blowing air into vaginas, but I know who was at risk of blowing air into a vagina once upon a time. Me, because my older brother told me when I was a child that a blowjob is when a man blows into a woman's vagina to inflate it so he can get his dick in there. That's what passed for sex education at St. Jerome's grade school, at least when it's coming out of the mouth of my older brother, Eddie. Don't blow into women's vaginas, pregnant or not. It can cause an air embolism, which is a air bubble in the bloodstream. Uh, if there is a tear, and there is sometimes a tear, and pre- pregnant women are particularly at risk for those kinds of tears in the placenta, in the vaginal canal. So yeah, don't blow into a vagina. Not that anybody is blowing into a vagina because nobody, not even me, I wasn't even dumb enough to take my older brother Eddie's advice about cunnilingus when I was in fifth grade. Hey, Dan, why do you think that the fandom of drag race and drag queens, which is comprised mainly of gay men, is so toxic? I imagine the fandom for drag race is as toxic as it is for the same reason why academic politics are so vicious, as Henry Kissinger allegedly once observed. Academic politics are so vicious precisely because the stakes are so low. I think the same applies in Drag Race Land. This is a contest. It's a beauty pageant and a talent show. And people get really invested in it. And then, you know, that gay male and certainly drag queen-ish propensity for, for reading people, opening the library, spilling the tea, all of that can metastasize into some toxic, shitty behavior. But there are toxic, shitty fans as a part of every fandom out there. You want to see other kinds of toxic, shitty fans? Other species? Go to a football game. Go to a professional wrestling match. Go to a Trump rally. There's plenty of toxic, shitty people out there. And I don't think as a percentage, they're overrepresented in drag race fandom. Hey, Dan. How soon is too soon to say I love you? Especially if you feel like the feeling is mutual, and especially if you're not exactly super young, say like over 30. I mean, is there even really a way to quantify it? Like, think about long-term couples who say that they knew right away that this was their person. 
I don't think that there's necessarily a right or wrong answer. Just want to know your thoughts. It's never too soon to say I love you unless it's too soon to say I love you. It is really subjective. I think you guys hear me talk about this a lot, that this is one of those arenas where people are assessing your judgment and it can spook someone. Everybody understands that. It can spook someone to hear I love you so early in the relationship that they feel pressured to respond in kind. They feel pressured to make even an emotional commitment to the relationship that they may be still assessing whether they want to make and weighing the pros and cons of. Saying I love you really puts that other person on the spot and you don't want to do that too soon. Even if you're feeling it, even if you suspect that they're feeling it, it is possible to acknowledge strong feelings without slapping that I love you label on it, which can unnerve people. Not just because I'm not necessarily feeling it yet. I don't want to say it yet. I feel pressured to say it now, but it can unnerve people in that good judgment zone around, ah, even though I'm kind of feeling it, that they said it on the seventh date indicates bad judgment on their part. Am I actually falling in love with somebody with terrible judgment, with bad judgment and low emotional IQ? Ah, that's a little scary. You can spook someone who's actually developing feelings for you into doubting those feelings for you by rolling that out too soon. As for that, I knew right away stuff. Unfortunately, I can't give you a perfect time when to say it. The 44th date, the third month. There's no perfect time. You have to use your best judgment in the moment. As for that new right away thing that you hear from couples who've been together a long time, they are backdating that new right away thing. They may have had a hunch early on that this person might be someone that they could be with forever or might be their person, but they had that hunch about a lot of different people and then they got rid of those people and so they don't have to own that. But I promise you they had that hunch about more than one person. All they're doing with the partner they're with now is revising that hunch to a certainty. Hi, Dan. Maybe you can clear up this question with your access to doctors, but what's the actual truth about mixing poppers and Viagra? I had to swear on like everything holy that I did not use poppers to get on Viagra, but then I show up at a group sex event and it's like they hand them out like candy. They give you Viagra on the way in the door and start passing around bottles of poppers. Uh, how bad is it to do that? The warnings don't square with my anecdotal experience, and I want to know if I should take it more seriously or not. There are a lot of people out there who mix poppers and Viagra, and that is a bad idea. It won't automatically kill you. It's not like lighting a fuse and the bomb goes off, but it puts you at risk, particularly if you have a heart condition, if you have low blood pressure, because poppers and Viagra both lower your blood pressure and cause a lot of blood to rush to your brain, and it forces your heart to work harder. And if you have a weak heart, and you may not know you have a weak heart until it's too late, if you have a weak or compromised heart, the mixture can be lethal. Now, it's not common. It can be lethal. It might kill you. You'll find plenty of people out there who mixed poppers and Viagra who are not dead, just like you can find plenty of people out there who got drunk and drove somewhere and didn't kill anybody and are not dead themselves. You can find people who smoke two packs of cigarettes a day for 70 years and they're 90 now and they are not dead. Doesn't mean it wasn't a risk just because individual results may vary. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'll make it short. 25-year-old straight female here. Call and ask if it's fair slash okay for me to get upset when my boyfriend rejects having sex with me. It uh, always feels pretty shitty, but I also don't want to be rapey and make him feel like he has to. 
It's fine to be disappointed when you're horny and you hit on your partner and you try to initiate sex and they don't want to have sex. You have to feel your feelings. What you don't want to do is weaponize your feelings. You don't want to manipulate or guilt your partner into having sex that they don't want to have. The bigger issue here, though, is are you two sexually compatible? Does he generally want sex at roughly the same clip that you want sex? Or is there something sexist going on here where he finds it emasculating or finds it somehow not feminine for you or not attractive for you to initiate sex, for you to ask for sex? Some men do find that off-putting. And you know what you do with those men? You put them off. You put them out. You get rid of them because you don't want to be with someone who doesn't not just respect your sexual agency and your desires, but is excited about your sexual agency and excited about not just your desires, but being desired by you. So this sadness that you talk about, does it go deep? Is it indicative of a flaw in the relationship, a fatal flaw potentially in the relationship, a sign that you two just aren't sexually compatible? Or is there a workaround? Are you a mixed match, low libido, high libido couple? And, and rather than him shutting you down when you want to have intercourse and he doesn't, is he willing to give you the masturbatory assist that sometimes people with the lower libido can do for their partners with the higher libido in a mixed libido relationship where you bust out the vibrator and he holds you and plays with your tits and whispers a few dirty things in your ear while you take care of yourself. If he's willing to go there, then when you initiate sex and he's not up for it or not feeling it, you can still get off and you won't feel so deprived and therefore won't feel so sad. If he's willing to accommodate, make this work and put in a little bit of effort when you need to get off. If he's not, yeah, maybe you need to get out. Hey, Dan, I'm a female in her 30s in the South and I love sounding, especially performed on me. I was wondering if you could help me understand why there's so much instantaneous fear of it, especially from people that have never heard of it and the complications that have happened with people who aren't careful, because obviously a lot can go wrong with anal or really any form of sex act. I know guys try to compare it to culture tests for STIs, but that's like me trying to compare sex to a pap smear. And all three guys who have agreed to let me do it have agreed that it was an irrational fear, and as a female, having it performed on me, it feels exactly like vaginal sex, but about a hundred times more intense, and it's great. So I was wondering if you could maybe clear that up. For this question, we got Mistress Matisse, professional dominatrix, cannabis entrepreneur, and sex workers' rights activist to come in and tackle it with me. Hey, thanks for coming back. Of course. So sounding, we should probably say what it is. Sounding is a wonderful practice that I much enjoy, and it involves inserting an object such as a catheter into someone's urethra. Or a metal rod. That's usually what you see in like sounding porn are these steel rods that are surgical. that are made for this purpose. And it's, some people have scars in your urethras, and they have to stretch their urethras back open. So it's got a legitimate medical purpose. Yes, it does. But some people think it's sexy to have a metal rod shoved up their dick or shoved into their urethra if they're a lady. They are a small but wonderful group of people, and I love them very much. But yeah, I, people who don't like it, it's rare to kind of convert someone to sounding when they don't immediately have a kind of cool reaction to it. Uh, but you can try. Uh, but it is a niche fetish, and so she's always going to have to probably uh, kind of seek for that if that's what she's seeking. Uh, I would encourage her to be careful herself because it's much easier for a woman to get a UTI uh, than a man and putting a catheter into yourself if it's not used with sterile lube and used in... If bacteria gets all the way up your urethra into your bladder, you can get a UTI. It's very painful for when the bladder is further away, further up the urethra for the dude with the dick, of course. And right. so 
you have a little more latitude sounding wise than a woman might. Yes. Yeah. I think it's like like seven or eight inches in a man and like four in a woman. It is a niche fetish, like you say. Uh, I don't think it's something that you can talk someone into being into, but it's not that painful. It's not. No, it's definitely not that painful at People all. People look at that and think that must hurt like hell. It really doesn't. And it doesn't. And I'm no. not going to tell you how I know that. <laughs> Not my thing, but I'm not going to tell you how I know that. I have done it to thousands of people and they have all been fine. And uh, yeah, they have enjoyed it, many of them. But you're going to have to look far and wide for partners, even kinky people. Even if you're like meeting people in dungeons and at play parties, only one in a thousand. That she's met three guys who were down. Right. That was, I, I would, maybe not more like one in a hundred. One in a hundred. But she's doing pretty good if she's she, met three guys who are down. If you are like, if you tell a man that like, this will turn me on sexually if you do this, they'll try a lot of things at least once. Thanks, Matisse. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a 19-year-old woman living in Canada, and I'm in love with my roommate, and I don't know what to do. Any advice you have would be awesome. I don't know how they feel about it, but me and uh, we have one other roommate sharing the house with us. So, yeah. The worry here is that it could get awkward. You go to your roommate and say, I have a crush on you. You're 19 years old. You probably just met this person. You are not in love with this person. You are attracted to this person. Don't round it up to love so quickly. But if you go to your roommate and say, I'm really kind of attracted to you. I'd like to ask you out on a date. Be unambiguous when you're asking somebody out. It's a date. Now, let's hang on sometime. They might not be into you in the same way that you're into them and then you will have been rejected and you will have feelings about that and you will have to see them every day and it'll feel like a fresh rejection every day until you burn through this crush. So rather than go to your roommate and hit on your roommate, you can suss out your other roommate, although that can be awkward for your other roommate too, then to know that you're feeling this way about the third roommate or you can just wait a little bit till you're not roommates anymore. The world is full of people who hooked up with roommates. The world is full of couples who met in roommate situations. I'm not telling you you can't ask them out. In fact, indeed, I did just acknowledge that you could ask them out just to ask them out unambiguously. But then you're going to have to face down some awkwardness if the answer is no. Or if you guys have a brief affair and it ends badly or just ends. And you know what? Most sexual relationships, most romantic relationships do end. Then it'll be extra double awkward that you guys are roommates and you dated for a little bit and then it ended. But you know what? There's no relationships. There's no sex. There's no intimacy. There's no connection without some awkwardness. Even when it works, even when you get together and you stay together, there's still going to be moments of awkwardness that you're going to have to power through. And you can power through these moments of awkwardness to get into your roommate's pants. Hi, Dan. Tech Savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. Um, I noticed that you are coming up close on show number 666. I'm wondering if you're planning on doing anything special for that show. Satan questions and Satanists and Satan worshipers. Anything, any kind of focus for that particular special number show? We are going to do something special for episode 666. Thanks to you, caller, for letting us know that episode was coming up. We famously forgot to do a let's get stoned and give sex advice episode of the savage love cast when we hit 420 but we're not going to make that mistake with episode 666 we have a very special guest lined up for that show that i think you are going to appreciate and that episode is going to be special and 666 themed thanks to you hey dan i was just curious because when i masturbate and even with a partner 
I can come pretty easily with a vibrator. It takes a little longer without it, but like my orgasms usually last like 10 seconds to 30 seconds. But I hear about some women who have these like three, four, five minute long orgasms. And I was just wondering how you get to that point of having a longer orgasm. The secret to a longer and more intensely felt orgasm is a longer build. Now, a lot of women are capable of having more than one orgasm. Sometimes those five-minute orgasms you hear about are a series of orgasms because the woman keeps going, keeps powering through the intensity of the sensations and the sensitivity and drives home, drives herself to, or her partner drives her to, another orgasm. But that can be difficult for some women because it, it, it tingles too much, that, that it trips from a delicious and intense sensation into a painful almost sensation. Not every woman is capable of that kind of stack of orgasms. But if you want to extend the already pretty decent 30-second orgasms you're having and double or quadruple or triple or quintuple the time, bigger buildup. Find those plateaus. Edge yourself. Bring yourself almost to the point of orgasm Back off a little bit, slow down a little bit, bring yourself back to the brink, find where your point of orgasmic inevitability is, and tiptoe almost all the way up to it again and again and again and again. And when you do finally have that orgasm, when you allow yourself in this edging session to go over the edge, it will be much more intense and much more long-lasting. Also, if you're using a vibrator externally and you're just hitting the glands of your clitoris, you have a lot more clitoral tissue that's buried inside you. Clitoral wings, clitoral roots. You can hit some of that clitoral tissue, basically the equivalent of the shaft of a man's penis with uh, penetration, with a vibrator that goes in you, with a vibrator, a vibrating butt plug that goes up your butt. It's possible that engaging more of your clitoris than you are at the moment could result in longer lasting and more intense orgasms. Hey, Dan. What is the status of the word faggot or fag? Has it gone the way of the word queer where anyone can use it and it's, you know, never perceived to be offensive or is it still considered a slur and you can use it and your gay friends can use it amongst yourselves, but straight people can't? Let me know what you think. Straight people can't, but of course do use that word. They can't use it. They use it all the time, usually in a hateful way. Faggot uh, among gay men is a little bit like the N-word among African-Americans. It is a sign of in-group understanding and fellowship and an acknowledgement of our shared experience of oppression and the way that word is used unaffectionately. And when we flip it on its head and use it affectionately with each other, it means something different and it means something different when it comes from one gay man to another gay man. And for a lot of gay men, it's a really hot word when it's incorporated into sex. But it's not a word that straight people get to use or get to say to their gay friends. You will get the same icy fucking reception or pushback, loud, argumentative, perhaps even physical pushback from a gay dude if you use that word in the same way. And I'm not drawing an equivalency between the F word and the N word, but you will get a pushback in the same way that you will get a pushback if you use the N word with African-Americans, even if they're using it amongst themselves, they're using it affectionately. That doesn't mean that white people have a right to use that word affectionately or otherwise. Hey, Dan, proud mom here of a bisexual girl who has a gorgeous soul. She's a junior. She has uh, some friends of hers who are uh, loud and proud like she is to me and a very small group of friends. Some of these kids 
don't come out at home because they're worried about getting, um, you know, kicked out of the house and, and parents' rejection, things like that. What resources, like resources, can I say, here, go look at this site, go find your tribe, go live a great life with people who know, love, and understand you, and go be you. Online, you can send these kids to the Trevor Project, which is a suicide prevention hotline. They also do a lot of support for LGBT kids, and they operate phone lines that are staffed 24-7, where LGBT kids, even if they're not suffering from suicidal ideation, can get a receptive ear and speak to a trained adult. There's also the It Gets Better Project, where they can find tons of video testimonials from other LGBT adults, not about how they sat on their asses waiting around for it to get better and then one day it did, but what they did to make it better, how they approached their families. There's a lot of really useful stuff in the It Gets Better project. These kids who right now aren't able to be out to their parents, they can watch videos from people who weren't able to be out to their parents when they were their age and are out to their parents now and their parents love and support them now and find out exactly what strategies those now adult queers used in approaching their hostile at the time families. The most valuable resource those kids can have in addition to a gay-straight alliance or a gender and sexuality alliance at their high school or middle school is an adult like you. You are the resource. You are the refuge. You are the image they have in their heads about who their parents could possibly be one day. And you are also the place where they can go and the home that they can enter, where they can relax and exhale and be themselves. So props to you. You may be the most important resource in these kids' lives, and you don't need to refer them to you. They've already got you. Hi, Dan. My girlfriend squirts virtually every time we have sex. We usually do a good job spot cleaning it every time, but uh, is that good enough? Is there some kind of pad or something you would recommend for us? People recommend towels. People recommend rubber sheets. There are absorbent hospital pads. There are fuzzy blankets that you can buy online that are absorbent to throw down during sex. And a Savage Love reader is selling what she calls waterproof splash pads for squirting ladies. And you can find those at buyanarae.com. It's B-Y-A-N-N-A-R-A-E.com where they sell luxury sex towels and more. Everything the squirting lady could ever want. Hey, Dan. I had some anal um, skin tags uh, that occurred from carrying children, and I'm out um, seeing, dating around, and I want to know when the best time to tell someone about it is. I haven't said anything, and I've let people uh, discover it on their you know, own, and um, I've also given people a warning before they go down there that things aren't uh, quite as uh, most people's booties should be, and I just want to know what you want to hear. You were with somebody who'd kind of was different down there. When would you want to hear it? I would appreciate a heads up in this circumstance, and in this circumstance, I would give a heads up. Some people may get down there and find skin tags and worry that it's a sexually transmitted infection, that it's a HPV, or they may worry it's a hemorrhoid or it's causing you pain for them to be engaging with your anus, with your butthole and touching you. So in advance, letting them know, look, you know, I had a couple of kids, I have some skin tags as a result uh, on my sphincters and they don't hurt and they aren't a sexually transmitted infection and they're nothing you need to worry about. They're just a little glorious variation because buttholes like vulvas, like foreskins, like dicks, like balls come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes and some of them are more elaborately accessorized 
than others. And it's nothing for you to be ashamed of, but you don't want to cause your partner any undue worry for themselves or for you when they get down there. And you want to spare yourself the tension, I think, of their first reaction when they get to your butt. That's not a great time to explain when someone's in your ass what's up with your ass. Better give them a heads up in advance. Hey, Dan, this is a mid-30s gay male in the South. And my question for the one-minute question show is just this. Are straight guys really that unable to find a clitoris? Uh, I've seen straight porn. Seems like the clit is pretty obvious. And uh, yeah, just want to make sure that I'm not missing something. Well, I never found one back when I was a teenager having sex with girls. And the reason I didn't find it is I wasn't particularly interested in finding it. And I think that's actually the issue for a lot of straight guys. They're not particularly interested in finding it and therefore they cannot find it. That intersects, if I can use that word in this context, with so many young women arriving at partnered sex, never having masturbated, really never having explored their clit themselves and not even realizing themselves how central their clit is going to be to their sexual pleasure, to their orgasmic response. So women don't center their clit during sex selfishly, and they have a right to be selfish and center themselves and their genitals during sex in the same way guys, of course, center their dicks during sex. Dick is regarded as pretty crucial and definitional to straight sex, whereas clit, which is slightly peripheral to straight sex, it's not in the vaginal canal, it's outside and above, can be disregarded and straight sex can still, if you define straight sex as PIV to the point of his orgasm, it can still be successful without the clit ever being engaged. And, you know, a lot of young women arrive at partnered sex not thinking about their own clits, never having engaged with their own clits, not knowing how central engaging their clits is going to be for their pleasure and expecting that they will come from PIV intercourse without any direct, intense, focused clitoral stimulation, a deftly placed vibrator or a good grind. But that's all a long digression from your question. No, the clit is not that hard to find. And the reason guys claim they can't find it or have difficulty finding it is because they don't want to find it. And women let them get away with that. Hey, Dan, a friend with benefits and I drifted apart years ago. You know, nothing happened, just, you know, just drifted apart. Life happens. Uh, they've recently come back into my zone and they're very, very emotionally attached to me. And they're just assuming that we can pick back up, pick back up where we left off. But however, I'm just not interested anymore. And I worry it would devastate them if I just, you know, told them that. So how do I shut them down without causing undue harm? I'm sorry, but you're just going to have to fuck this person for the rest of your life to avoid hurting their feelings. Look, you don't have to fuck this person ever again. And you just have to be direct with this person and expect that they will handle this rejection. And it's a rejection. And rejection is always painful. And that they'll handle this little bit of rejection. It's a friends with benefits rejection. It's not, you know, you're not divorcing a spouse. They'll handle this rejection with some grace, even if it causes them to have feelings that they will process those feelings and vent about those feelings, not to you, but to a vent appropriate pal. And whatever feelings they have about this rejection and rejection is a part of everyone's intimate life and everyone's sex life. They're not your responsibility ultimately. And you can't fuck this person eternally to avoid them having a big sad about you not wanting to fuck them ever again. Just be direct and be honest and be kind. And directness and honesty in a circumstance like this is kindness, even if the person on the receiving end of this kind of direct and honest rejection can't immediately perceive the kindness in it. Nobody really wants to be pity fucked.
Hi, Dan. My question is really just about if you have a name for a particular sex act, which is uh, the one I'm thinking of is where one person is there and they're being fucked by a man or a person with a strap on. The person doing the fucking there is also being fucked by a third person. And then this could go on forever. You require at least three people for the sex act, but there could be a four or five people, but each fucking and in turn being fucked in a line. But I would call this a train, but that as a word already exists for a different sex act where one person fucks many people in succession. So I was wondering if there's a word for that or if your viewers could come up with one. One person fucking many people in succession is called running a train. A line of people, each one fucking the person in front of them, is just called a train, not running a train. If it's just three people, the act is named for the person in the center, the person who is fucking and at the same time being fucked, and that person is called Lucky Pierre. And the act is, if it's just three people, just called We Did a Lucky Pierre, We Pulled Off a Lucky Pierre. Then if you say, I got Lucky Pierre last night or We Pulled Off a Lucky Pierre, People will ask the obvious follow-up question, which is, well, who was Pierre? But they will know exactly what you mean by, I was in a lucky Pierre last night. Then you get to tell them whether you got to be Pierre, whether you got lucky, or you were just one of the two people making Pierre feel so lucky and feel so special. Hey, Dan, 27-year-old on the East Coast, cisgendered gay man here. My question is regarding dating and age. So I just got back from a date with a 19-year-old. I'm literally sitting in the driveway of my home. And I kind of thought, you know, hey, you know how most dates kind of just end in sex and, you know, we're fine. This wasn't. This was like, okay, we're having a very nice time. Um, We kissed at the end and then he went home. And we've kind of gotten ourselves into a situation where we're going to see each other. We're in um, a theater show together. And I don't know. It seemed like we kind of left on a note like, oh, well, we're thinking about dating, dating. Maybe I'm putting too much into it, but it just got to got me thinking like dating a 19 year old, I'm 27. It's kind of like wrong societally, right? But why? And why is that wrong? Some days I feel like we should just get it over with and rage the age of consent to 37. 19 years old. He is an adult. He can vote. A few decades ago, he could legally drink in this country. He can go off to war. He can kiss you in your car. He can sit on your dick if that's what he wants to do. It's not uncommon for 18, 19, 20-year-old gay guys to date guys, at least initially, who are a little bit older than they are, sometimes significantly older than they are. Sometimes they're legitimately attracted to older guys. Sometimes guys their age, most of them, many of them, aren't out or not enough of them are out for there to be a selection. And it could be that circumstance threw you together. You're both adult gay men working on a play together and you're attracted to each other. You need to take the age difference into account. You know, there's a big difference between 19 and 27, less of a difference between 27 and 36. So you need to be considerate and you need to obey the campsite rule. You need to leave him in better shape Then you found him. But it's not impossible for a 19-year-old theater kid to date somebody from one of his plays a little bit older than he is and for it to be a good experience for both people, even if it doesn't last forever. Just be cognizant of the power imbalance here because you're older and more experienced. Be considerate. Be solicitous. Obviously, you're sitting alone in your car having only kissed. 
don't rush him and you aren't rushing him. And if you're interested in dating him, take it at his pace. One of the ways you honor the campsite rules not to mislead anyone or lie to anyone. If you're not interested in dating him, don't date him. Don't let him get some 19-year-old crush on you and fall for you if you are not in a position that you want him falling for or on you. But if you're into him and you could see this as a successful summer romance and perhaps something a little bit more open-ended than that, go for it. You're both adults. Hey, Dan. This is a 29-year-old cis female from the Midwest. I just came from a second date. I had sex with a guy. I'm trying to, like, be sexually liberal because you're only young once and may as well. Sex was fine. But he came really quickly. I didn't even know he came. And he did not ask me if I had come after the fact. Do I go on another date with him or not? Also, I realized I said sex was good, but I didn't come. So couldn't have been that great. Uh, Am I obligated to, like, try it again and use my words and say, hey, don't come until I do? Or, like, hey, you just came. Want to get me off, too? Or do I call it a laugh and go out and find more fish in the sea? You may not have realized that he came when he came, but he, of course, realized that he came when he came. And it sounds like he came early and maybe he has a premature ejaculation issue or maybe he was just a little bit overstimulated and overexcited to be with you. And because you didn't say anything and he didn't say anything, the shame monster from Big Mouth kind of rolled in. Instead of letting the shame monster roll in, don't give the shame monster any space. You have to say in that moment, hey, that's you got off. I'd like to get off too. And just directly address the issue. He may, if he came really quickly, be one of those people who comes quickly and then just needs like 10 minutes of focusing on you and your pleasure before he's hard again and can come again and take longer to come the second time. Or he just may have told you that, ah, he got a little carried away, he got a little overexcited, tiptoed to the point of orgasmic inevitability, got a little too close to it, closer than he usually gets. And you would have found out what was up with him. But what you would have learned that was so much more important was whether he's aware that a woman's orgasm is a thing and that a woman has a right to expect an orgasm from partnered sex. And you needed to advocate for yourself in that moment, not just to get the orgasm that you deserved, but to really get the intelligence on this guy that you need. Whether you want to waste any more time or pussy on this guy, you could have determined that all in that instant. When you said, instead of saying nothing, you said instead, I'd like to get off. And if he acted like getting you off was a chore or a surprise, not somebody you want to see ever again. Even if he lasted for hours, not somebody you want to see ever again. Hey, Dan. I'm a 39-year-old listener. I've heard you talk about kinky and vanilla. There's no in-between. And I don't think I would describe myself as kinky, but I don't think I'm as boring as vanilla. So what is the differentiation? What is vanilla and what is kink? What, what, What makes one thing vanilla and what makes one thing kinky? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. We only have two minutes to answer, so I'm going to have to rush through your credentials. Dr. Lay Miller, quickly, Director of Social Psychology Graduate Program and Assistant Professor of Social Psychology at Ball State University. Also, faculty affiliate at Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. Runs the popular blog, Sex and Psychology. His latest book is Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help Improve Your Sex Life. Okay, Justin, go. So, Kinky and Vanilla 
are subjective terms. Different people define them in different ways, and, and that's okay. But the way that I define them as a sex researcher is that I see kink as referring to anything that's non-mainstream. So that could be anything from BDSM to, to group sex, you know, activities that are not as commonly practiced. And if you're into vanilla stuff, you're somebody who's more into more mainstream types of activities, uh, you know, just one partner at a time and into more commonly practiced things like oral sex maybe penile vaginal intercourse and so forth. Uh, wait, and I'm going to jump in there. I, I'm old enough to remember when oral sex was considered kind of kinky. Um, you know, books from the, the, the 50s and 60s and sex manuals talked about oral sex. Well, it is sodomy, technically, the church's mm-hmm. definition, legal definitions of sodomy, oral sex qualifies. And oral sex moved into the mainstream. So it is possible for something to go from outlier or kink or stigmatized to one of those things everybody does. Absolutely. So kinky and vanilla are culturally dependent and they're also dependent on time. Um, I also think it's useful to, you know, think about kink and vanilla as running on separate continuums. So you can be high in your interest in both kink and vanilla, or you can be low in your interest in both or somewhere in between or high on one and low on the other. So uh, these things can exist in different combinations. And I would also say it's important to not put value judgments on these things and say that vanilla is necessarily boring because vanilla sex can be hot and exciting and it's all in the way that you practice it and and what is fun and appealing to you. You don't want to be doing something kinky just to feel more interesting if it's not turning you on. That's not the point of kink. Absolutely. It's you do what what feels good and what feels right to you, not because you feel like you need to do something or you're supposed to do something. Dr. Justin Lynn Miller, thank you so much. We came in just on time. Thanks. Hi, Dan. So um, this is more of a technical question. I work um, in an ER, and um, I we occasionally have people coming in that have to have items extracted from um, their rectum. So can you give the public some information, some directions on how not to get things stuck in there because they really don't want to have to come in and have have these things extracted. Nobody wants that. Yeah, you can't say that no one wants to come in and have these things extracted. I'm sure there are some people out there who like having things extracted. There are people with medical fetishes. I don't think it's okay for someone with a medical fetish to involve medical professionals in their kink without their consent. But yeah, you can't rule out the possibility that some of the people showing up in your ER did this to themselves on purpose because they are enjoying this trip to the ER, which is not okay. If you want to avoid that humiliating, embarrassing, annoying trip to the ER and the medical bills that will come as a consequence of it, even if you have healthcare coverage, the rule of thumb, the rule of thumb in your butt is a flared base. If you're going to put a dildo or a butt plug or any toy up your butt, use a toy designed for ass play, which is going to have a base flared, spread out a big wide base that can't slip into your butt, that can't follow the dildo or butt plug the rest of the way into your anal cavity and then disappear. Flared bases, people. That's why they put balls on a lot of dildos, not just because everybody loves the sight of scrotum, because it creates a flared base. That's why on your better butt plugs, and there are some not so good butt plugs out there where the flared base is so small, it's not flared enough that you can get the whole thing 
up your butt if you're not careful. But it's why butt plugs have wide flared bases to keep it from disappearing into your ass and to keep your ass out of the ER. Hello, Dan. I have a question for you. I recently had anal sex for the first time and it was with the man and he ejaculated inside of me. And my question is, is it normal to have like loose stool, uh, like diarrhea after that? I'm just not sure if maybe like I had a reaction to his semen or to the lube or maybe, I don't know, it was just like a mini enema with that stuff going inside of me. So I'm not really sure if that's normal, like if it's something I just need to get used to, or if it was like a weird reaction that my body had. Would appreciate some input. Thank you. Occam's razor, probably if you used enough lube, he pumped a whole bunch of lube up inside you, as he should. You should err on the side of using tons of lube, particularly for your first experiences, and then for your subsequent experiences, continue using tons of lube. And then you're going to have to crap that lube out at some point, and it may mix with some fecal matter that was a little further up your lower GI and so didn't engage during the anal but is now washing out with the lubricant. That is a risk. You could also be allergic to his semen. Some people are allergic to other people's semen. They have allergic reaction to enzymes in other people's semen. There are people who, when they swallow their partner's semen, they get diarrhea. They get loose stools. Some people, if their partner, who have these sensitivities to particular people's semen, not everybody's semen, it's individual, they will break out in hives. Somebody will come on your chest, come on your stomach, and you'll get raised red welts. So that person will get raised red welts, and that's an allergic reaction to enzymes in the cum. It could be that you had an allergic reaction and his cum up your butt, if you didn't use a condom, loosened your stool in the same way it could have loosened your stool if you'd swallowed it and had the exact same allergic reaction. But you know what my money's on? My money's on. You had some poop way the fuck up there and he pumped a whole bunch of lube up you and it met halfway and mixed and then you had to get rid of both at once and you perceived it as a loose stool. If you don't have this problem when you swallow his cum, it's unlikely that it was an allergic reaction. And I think as you get more experienced and more practiced in this and get more fiber in your diet, you won't have these loose stool reactions after anal. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old bisexual female from the East Coast. And about eight years ago, I was gang raped by several men. And it really did put a damper on my uh, sex positivity for a while. I shaved my head. I started uh, dressing really androgynously so I wouldn't seem attractive. And in the past few years, this new partner I've had um, has helped me really come back into my own, my own femininity, and my own desire for sex. And long story short, I'm really looking into the CDSM and to possibly I have always had this gangbang fantasy, hoping that it goes more positively. Is there any way that you know how to approach this in a positive way to start the conversation? And my partner knows about it, but I also have him referred to a therapist, and things have been going really well. I just The therapist can't really help me uh, learn the words to ask the question to get this started with the right people in a safe way. Congrats on all the work you've done to reclaim your sexuality and your agency. I am saddened by what was done to you and fuck those motherfuckers that raped you. Reclaiming your sexuality is an important step in the recovery and the journey and the healing for someone who has been a victim of sexual violence. And so props to you, props to your therapist, props to your partner. 
And the difference between the violence that was done to you and the fantasies that you have around BDSM and gangbang is control and consent. Control and consent is the magic ingredient that changes everything. It is possible to look at a photograph of two people having missionary position vaginal intercourse and not know just from that evidence that one person has been coerced or one person has been forced and that is a photo of a of a rape and to look at a photo of someone engaged in BDSM activities or consensual gangbang you may read violence into that situation because of our prejudices about people's fantasies and more extreme fantasies and about power games in sex and play in sex and read violence into that image when there is no violence in that image. It is about consent and who is in control and you are in control. You want to know the words that you can use with your partner? Well, this is a varsity level kink and this will take time to arrange and I think you need to acknowledge that, that you have this fantasy about a gangbang that's consensual and where you are in control and you get to draw up the guest list and figuring out who those people are, that group of men is that you feel safe and comfortable with and can then relax and let go with and have this gangbang that you fantasize about, it will take time and effort and screening for you to put that group of guys together. But it is not impossible, particularly if you are involved in a healthy kink scene and kink community where comfort, safety, and consent are always everyone's chief concern. And those kink scenes and those kink communities exist out there. But again, it's going to take time and I, you don't want to get out over your skis. And I think it's really important that this is something that you talk openly and honestly, not just with your partner about, but also with your therapist about because you don't want to go into this experience and then discover some minds in the field that you didn't know were there or didn't anticipate. So congratulations on – your recovery and all the work you've done over the last eight years to take control back of your own sexuality. And I'm in awe of your ability to really own your sexual desires. And yes, I went over two minutes with that response, but I felt I had to, and really no one's going to object, right? Hi, I'm wondering what's the best toy, adult toy slash lube combination. I know there's sometimes when you can and you cannot use a, silicone-based lube, or maybe we should never be using a silicone-based lube. So if you could maybe speak about what are the best toy materials and which lubes will and will not be compatible with those materials. Joining me by phone to tackle this question, Sarah Dysock, owner of Early to Bed, Chicago's feminist sex shop. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm in a hurry. we got two minutes to answer this question. Okay, Let's sorry, do it. <laughs> um. I would say that the um, water-based lube is the best choice for any and all sex toys. Find one that works with their body chemistry and you'll be good to go with any sex toy. Silicone lubes are great for body parts and non-silicone sex toys. So think steel and glass and hard plastic toys, but you do want to avoid using silicone lube with any silicone sex toys. Why is they that? Can adhere to the sur- it can adhere to the surface, so it sort of bonds to the surface and can just create a a tacky toy or it can dull the surface. Oh, and then it'll pull at your delicate tissues, particularly anal tissues, if it's tacky. It could, but more it just sort of mars the surface of your toys and makes it less appealing. But it's, it's just not recommended. It does, for some manufacturers, warranty you to use silicone lube with a silicone toy. It can void that warranty. So you just want to keep those separate. We're always recommending that people use silicone toys and that silicone toys are kind of held up as the best, sort of the top of the line. Yes. 
uh, for sex for toys. toys for sure for soft toys but then it's important you know i'm a big fan of actually stainless steel and glass toys uh, mm-hmm. and, and they're great but i hadn't actually heard that you should avoid using a silicone lube with a silicone toy that's news to me i'm glad the caller asked that question me too it's a good question are there any other bad combos any other things that people need to bear in mind before they shove something in them you want to watch out for oil-based lubes. If you have a vagina, then oil-based lubes for the most part are not so good for vaginas. And if you are using um, oil with sex toys, it can kind of be hard to clean off the sex toys. And again, for especially for vibrating toys, some warranties um, are null and void if you use oil-based toys, uh, oil-based lube with um, vibrating sex toys, some vibrating sex toys. And important to note that an oil-based lube degrades latex, so you don't want to use an oil-based lube with a condom because it can... Absolutely. Result in the condom breaking or falling apart. Absolutely. You never want to use that. They're, oil-based loops are great for penises, having fun on their own for the most part. Sarah Dysock, owner of Early to Bed Chicago's Feminist Sex Shop. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone for the One Minute Wonder Show. My pleasure. Hey, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am calling about something that I'm sure you've covered and I know you've covered many, many times. Um, however, I don't really remember your answer. So dating this really fantastic guy, had sex with a friend weeks before we had gotten together. So the question is, do I tell my new boyfriend and uh, or does it ruin everything? So, yeah, still friends with the guy. Now my boyfriend is friends with the other guy and he doesn't know. And I'm starting to feel like I'm hiding something. Um, but it's going to make it much, much worse to say anything and impact sort of everybody's relationships. You don't have to disclose everything you've ever done, every dick you've ever sucked to someone you just started dating. The complication here is that this guy that you slept with some weeks before you met the guy you're dating now, this friend, is now your boyfriend's friend. And is this going to come out? And if it is going to come out better he hear it from you than hear it from some other mutual friend who's aware that you two had sex and starts talking about it at a party like that must be awkward considering that he slept with her before you two even met if that's a likely situation or if this friend that you slept with sometimes behaves erratically or in a mean-spirited way and might throw it in your boyfriend's face down the road if they have some sort of conflict or get competitive about God knows what, you're going to want to be the one who told him and told him first. You can preface it with, before we met, I like, you know, I was sexually active. Do you want to know who in my social circle I've slept? And he might say, no, he'd rather not know. And then if it does come out later, he asked you not to tell him. And he, if he's a sane and decent guy, he's not going to hold it against you that somebody else told him. But really, projecting myself into this circumstance, I would tell him just because I'd want him to hear it from me. I wouldn't want this ticking time bomb, if indeed it would blow the relationship up, rattling away. I wouldn't want this bomb ticking away in a corner, if indeed it had the potential to explode the relationship, just because it would make me tense and anxious. And if he can't be with you because you were with somebody else before him and he can't trust you with this friend because you had a sexual encounter with this friend, then he's probably not the right guy for you to be with. And he's disqualifying himself by freaking out or blowing up about this fact if and when you decide to share it with him. Hi, Dan. I'm calling you from uh, beautiful Bowen Island in uh, British Columbia, Canada sitting here with some friends and we were wondering about 
the feasibility and I guess reality of a um, sexual position that would only work between two men. The idea is that they're scissoring one another um, or arranging themselves in such a way that each of their penises is in the ass is inside the ass of the other one. Is this possible? Does this exist? Please inform. It's hard to picture. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened, particularly in porn land. There seems to be porn about just about anything that two people can do to each other or imagine doing to each other. But you would need a couple of dudes with long dicks to make that happen. Of course, porn selects for dudes with long dicks. And I'm sure my listeners are already busily searching Pornhub for evidence that this is indeed a thing that someone somewhere has successfully attempted or two someones somewhere have successfully attempted. But I have never experienced this personally and I haven't in the wild in my own explorations, research purposes only. I have not seen this in any of the porn that I have watched over the last oh, few years. But tossing this out there to the listeners, if you've seen this or experienced this, give us a call and let this caller know where he can find it. If you've experienced it personally, we want to hear your testimonial. If you know where the porn exists, we want your referral, 206-302-2064. Hey, Dan. Uh, at a recent, on a recent podcast, you said, and don't get me started on this micro-infidelity thing that some people are pushing. And I think I speak for all Americans if not at least some of your listeners, in saying, we really want to hear what you have to say about that. I'm very intrigued about the concept, and I'm curious if you can unpack a little bit about what it is and why you don't seem to think it's, it's a legitimate thing. Here's my issue with micro-cheating or micro-infidelities, which includes having a friend at work of the opposite sex, texting sometimes with a friend from work or a friend the, my problem with it is, you know, we live in a culture where we've defined cheating as always a relationship extinction level event, as an unforgivable betrayal and always the end of the relationship. Then we define absolutely everything as cheating. Looking at porn is cheating. Having a friend of the opposite sex, if you're straight, at work is cheating. The list goes on and on and on. Thinking about somebody else while we're having sex is cheating. People's definitions of cheating have just metastasized. So if cheating is always the end of the relationship, we define absolutely everything as cheating, then we're not allowed to stand there with our thumbs in our asses as people get divorced and break up, wondering why People are breaking up at this rate. Why the divorce rate is so high? Well, we define cheating as an unforgivable betrayal and we define everything as cheating. Therefore, every relationship is going to collapse. Seems to me that we already have enough things that fall into the definition of cheating, sleeping with somebody else, making out with somebody else, getting a hand job from somebody else, getting a blow job from somebody else, eating somebody else's pussy, all cheating, actual infidelities, actual adulteries. We have enough things that fall under that header. We don't need to add liking someone's photos on Instagram, having a platonic friendship, sending a text message to an ex, fantasizing about someone else during sex with your partner. The more things we heap under the label cheating, so long as cheating is defined as always a relationship extinction level event, the less stable our relationships and less resilient our relationships will be in the face of desire for others, which is not a betrayal in a long-term committed relationship, it is a constant. Hi, Dan. This is a 20-something straight female living in the Midwest, and I am here chatting with my husband about the fact that 
when he says hello and goodbye to his mother, they kiss on the lips. Now, I personally feel that this is very weird. He thinks it's totally normal and also just supplies the fact that he even greets his best friend's mother by kissing her on the lips. I would just like your opinion on, is this weird or is this normal? Normal for your boyfriend, weird for you. Luckily for you, you aren't obligated to kiss his mother on the lips. Luckily for you, the fact that he kisses his mother on the lips and his mother's friends on the lips doesn't obligate you in any way to not be, A, weirded out by it, or B, to adopt the practice yourself. If it weirds you out, if it makes you uncomfortable, glance the fuck away. Not a tongue kiss. It's not going on for two or three minutes. I assume it's a peck. If it was more than a peck, I assume you would have mentioned that fact. A quick peck, you can cover for that by glancing up at his mother's souvenir teaspoon collection or whatever else the fuck she has on the wall in her house. You don't have to watch, and your boyfriend doesn't need your approval. Hi, Dan and Nancy. Uh, How do you feel about using the term guys to refer to a mixed-gender couple or group of people? Is calling a group of women guys or a group that includes women guys sexist? They tackled this question recently on The Waves, one of my favorite podcasts, Hannah Rosen, June Thomas, and Noreen Malone. And I got to say, I agree with Noreen Malone, who comes to the defense here of guys as a gender-neutral term. Noreen, since you are the um, tool of the patriarchy, <laughs> the tool yeah. of the patriarchy, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe you could take this one on on why you're constantly calling us guys and if that's sexist. <laughs> I am unoffended by it, obviously. Uh, I think of guys as gender neutral. Is that wrong? Yes. Well, I think what the caller is saying is, is it's that not. I know, I know. It's not that gender neutral. Uh-huh. It's one of those leftover terms. It's just kind of leftover and floating around in our consciousness, but it does actually refer to men, and yet we all use it as the default. So maybe the queer, like we need to queer that one up and just force a term that's that's traditionally like, hey, bitches, you know, or something <laughs> like that, that you would just casually refer to a group of people as. And I got to say, I agree with Hannah Rosen there at the end that we do need a gender neutral term for a group of people. And I think maybe we should embrace in the spirit of Broad City dudes. Hi, Dan. This is a Pacific Northwest listener for the last four years. And over the years, I've slowly picked up on all your little Danisms. Uh, But one question that's been left unanswered is how you and Nancy met. And um, I've just been so curious because you're always so supportive of each other and even though she doesn't come on the air very often it seems like you guys have known each other a very long time so i was curious if you could shed more light on this hey i can shed some light on that hi it's nancy and i'm answering this because dan is out of town and the show wasn't quite long enough for you, beloved Magnum listeners, so I'm hopping on. Uh, Dan and I met in 1991 when a bunch of us all converged here in Seattle to start The Stranger, our now bi-weekly newspaper. So I've known Dan and worked with him for a really long time, but it wasn't until 2006 when we were playing around with podcasts and we knew Dan's column would make a great show, so we started The Lovecast. Uh, I had to pretty much drag him into it, kicking and screaming, because he really didn't want to do it. You can hear it in his voice on that first episode. It sounds like a hostage video, and the audio is terrible. Do not go back and listen to the first episode. (laughs) 
But anyway, we eventually got it together. And uh, I think he likes doing the show now. I sure hope so. And you're right, Caller. We are supportive of each other. I love working with Dan. He's a mutant. Okay, that's all I have to say. Thanks for listening, everybody. Next call. Hey, Dan. Here's a question for your one-minute podcast. I'm a 50-year-old straight man, and it would seem that I can no longer have an orgasm without farting. What should I do? Do your kegels. Stand in front of the toilet, take a piss, cut off the stream of urine, clench those muscles, strengthen your kegels. It'll also engage and strengthen your anus, and maybe it'll give you a little bit more control in the moment. But coming is about losing control, and there are worse things that a person can do at the point of orgasm than fart. If you have a regular partner, they're probably used to it at this point. It's probably a price of admission that they are willing to pay to get on your dick. But if you find it embarrassing or awful, do your kegels. Maybe get a butt plug. The risk, of course, of putting a butt plug in when you know you're going to fart is that butt plug flying across the room. But maybe that would be a welcome diversion. The clatter of the butt plug hitting the floor on the other side of the room will mask the clatter of the gas you're passing. Hi, Dan. I heard uh, the most horrifying thing in a Facebook sex group that this woman likes to take a piece of ginger root, peel it, and stick it in her ass like a butt plug. She loves the stinging, especially when she clamps down on it while getting spanked by her dog. That that cannot that cannot be good for you. Like that I mean, am I blowing this out of proportion or is it as horrifying as it I think it is? Are you blowing it out of proportion? Perhaps. I don't think that this is going to trend on Twitter and the kids are all going to be doing it. It exists. It has a name. It's called figging. That's the name. I don't know why we call peeling a piece of ginger root a fig, but it's called a fig. It's figging and it stings and burns. And for some people, that sensation is pleasant. Some people like scalding hot sauce in their mouths. They find that sensation pleasant. People are different. People are varied. What they take pleasure from is different and varied. But you don't have to think about this. You don't have to torment yourself with the thought of the things that other people get up to for pleasure. I once weeded an entire garden around a house where Terry and I lived, and it wasn't only after I was finished weeding that I realized that I was pulling up stinging nettles and my arms up to my shoulders were covered in stinging nettle pointy things. And I lost my mind. It was so freaking painful. And it wasn't two months later before I stumbled over porn of someone putting stinging nettles into their underpants and covering their genitalia with those same stinging nettle little poker things. I didn't get it. But you know what I also didn't do? I didn't waste too much time obsessing about it or calling into sex advice shows about it. I was just like, huh. People are different. People are varied. People are weird. One person's pain is another person's pleasure. And, uh, I don't get the nettle thing. You don't get the figging thing, but neither of us are obligated to do it or think about it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old straight woman. I went out on a couple of dates with a really nice guy. He's cute. The issue is that he has long, curly hair, which was <clears throat> totally fine, but we hooked up and he took his hat off and he's bald with long hair. And I just cannot with that. So I was just curious 
I can't be the only person that thinks that this is a terrible grooming decision. And I think he's super embarrassed about it because I took his hat off. And then as soon as we had made out, he put it immediately back on. So he must know this is an issue. Is there any way that you can tell someone something like this nicely as in you'd look sexy if you had a bald head and it's horrible having long hair and um, being bald. I don't know if that's something you can say to someone or not. You're not allowed to tell someone they would look better if they lost 15 pounds. You're not allowed to tell somebody they would look better if they dyed their hair and covered up the gray. You're not allowed to tell somebody they would look better naked if they trimmed their pubic hair. You're not allowed to tell somebody blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of things you're not allowed to tell people about their appearance when you begin dating them. You're supposed to accept their appearance when you begin dating them and uh, affirm it and not start critiquing how they look or how they present. There are some things you're allowed to tell people, though. If they want to put the tongue in your mouth, they want to put their tongue in your mouth, they want to shove their saliva into your mouth, and they haven't flossed ever or brushed recently, I think we all agree you have a right to say, hey, I would very much like to drink half a pint of your saliva, but first, you're going to have to brush your teeth. So while I think we should all err on the side of not critiquing the appearance of someone we just started dating, sometimes people need to hear something because it'll free them. It'll liberate them. There are people out there who dress to cover up their bodies, who dress to hide themselves because they don't feel like they're beautiful. And you can just see someone folding themselves up inside their clothes to hide. And it can help to have somebody who likes them, and who's attracted to them say, you shouldn't hide this way. Why are you covering up who you are and what you are? You're beautiful. Turn it out. He may be hung up on being bald. And he just might need to hear from one partner just to lift his hair up and pull it all back and say, you know what? You would look so much hotter than you already do if you just shaved your head. Bald is sexy. Bald is hot. There are hot, bald guys out there in the world. And I think you naturally are one of them. Say it. Obviously, I'm attracted to you. Obviously, you're hot. Here we are together again. But you know what? You would look so good, even better than you already do, if you lost the hair, if you went for that Mr. Clean, sexy, testosterone-soaked, bald guy, baller look. Hi, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old cisgendered man uh, living in the Pacific Northwest. And what I think is uh, heteroflexible, but I'm not sure. I'm attracted to cisgender women and uh, transgender women. Uh, I usually say I'm attracted to women and don't discriminate by sex. I asked my sex-positive online community if that makes me heteroflexible. And I got some backlash, I remember, <clears throat> who said that uh, saying I'm not a heterosexual because I'm attracted to trans women is insulting and would get me banned in some communities because it makes a statement that trans women don't fully count as women. So here's my question. Does being attracted to trans women fall under heterosexuality? And is it insulting to trans women to claim I'm heteroflexible because I'm attracted to women with cocks? All right. Here's something that we're told we want to see. We want to see more people out there in the world who are open to dating and having sex with trans people. And then we want to police how they identify or express themselves about that attraction. I don't think you as a straight guy sleeping with a trans woman, even a trans woman with a penis, makes you heteroflexible in the commonly understood meaning of that word. Heteroflexible usually means mostly straight, mostly into opposite sex partners. I have occasionally messed around with someone of my own gender. Messing around with a trans woman, sleeping with a trans woman, dating a trans woman, you're not messing around with somebody 
of your own gender. They're opposite. So that's not quite heteroflexible in the commonly understood meaning of the term. I think you should just go with that other thing you floated. I'm attracted to women. I am into women. The classification women includes cisgendered women. It also includes trans women. You're needlessly complicating this. You are a new model straight guy and you should be embraced, not faulted for doing what we want more people to do, doing what trans people want more people to do, which is being open to date trans people. You don't get a gold star for that because you get to sleep with all these amazing people, some of them with penises. But we should take your existence as a sign of the progress that we're making and be maybe not in such a hurry to jump down your throat when the wrong word or term comes out of it. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight woman living on the West Coast of California. I haven't had a lot of casual sex in the past, but I recently did with a man that works at the same restaurant as I do. As we were about to have sex, I asked him if he had a condom on, and he said yes. Ten minutes later, I realized he, in fact, did not. I realize that this is a violation of my consent. My question is, how should I proceed? I feel like I should have a serious talk with him because I don't want him to to do this with another woman. And he needs to know that this is not okay. What is your advice? If I were you, I would download and print out an article that Alexander Brodsky wrote in April of 2017 titled Rape Adjacent Imagining Legal Responses to Non-Consensual Condom Removal. At this stage, stealthing, as it's called, taking a condom off or assuring someone you are wearing a condom when you are not, in fact, wearing a condom, difficult to prosecute, not specifically criminalized anywhere, but we are on our way. There is a push to criminalize this behavior, this violation of someone's consent. It negates the consent that you granted for that person to put their penis inside your body if they maliciously and surreptitiously remove the condom that was a condition of the sex that you were going to have. Rape adjacent, as Brodsky describes it in her piece. I would, if I were you, slap that article down on the desk in front of him and scream and yell at him and maybe tell him why might not be able to call the police on him yet. The way things are moving and as troubled as people are by this phenomena, we're moving in that direction and his time will come and he will pay a price for this. At the moment, it's going to be a reputational price because any woman who ever asks you whether he was a good guy or asks you to vouch for him. And a lot of guys don't get that the women have this sort of secret vouch for network that goes on behind the scenes because guys are testosterone-soaked dick monsters and are dangerous to women, and women want to do everything they can to mitigate the risks of being attracted to men. So there is this not whisper network, but this warn network and flag network that exists behind the scenes. And he is going to have a shitty-ass reputation on that whisper flag network thanks to this kind of behavior. And you're going to say your piece not just to him, but to any woman who ever asks you what you think of him. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 22-year-old bisexual woman, and um, I feel like I've dated more people than people my age have generally dated. I feel like I'm pretty relationship-oriented, and I sort of 
and maybe it's because I'm 22, but I sort of have this issue where I date a lot of assholes. Um, I had a kind of difficult upbringing. I have a lot of issues with my mother, but I've also been to years of therapy and I'm really proud of the progress that I've made. But for some reason, I feel like my sort of meter to understand how people are is a little bit off. And I just have this issue where I feel like I keep attracting people. So I was wondering what your thoughts on this are. You know, how do you get better at attracting people who are nice and, you know, compassionate? It's not about attracting people, you know, putting out some signal that only nice and compassionate people can hear. There's not some nice, compassionate person version of a dating dog whistle. It's about learning how to weed out the shitty people when you're in the dating process. And you want to watch out for the red flags. Are they controlling? Are they trying to wedge you out of being in contact with your friends or family? Are they isolating you? Are they belittling you or gaslighting you? There's lots of things in the relationship that you can look for, but that takes time for those things often to reveal themselves. People tend to be on their best behavior at the outset and then they reveal their assholery, particularly if they're abusive assholes. They roll that out slowly so that by the time you realize they're an abusive asshole, you've made this investment and you're reluctant to walk away. It's the sunk cost fallacy as it applies to relationships. But there are things you can look for very early on. How do they treat waiters and baristas, do they treat people with contempt if they treat a waiter or a barista or, or anybody that they haven't come into contact with? A bus driver, a stranger sitting next to them on the airplane with contempt, that is how they will treat you too in the end. How do they talk about their exes? If anyone they ever dated is a bitch or a bastard or a lying whore or whatever else, they're the common denominator in all those failed relationships. And how they talk now about their ex is how they will talk about you potentially most likely in the future, we date a lot of people. We have a lot of short-term relationships. It takes a while to find the one that sticks. And so everybody you date, particularly at age 22, is probably a future ex. Listen to how they talk about their exes. Highly likely that's how they're going to talk about you. Do you want to be talked about that way in three months or six months? Don't date that person. Now, some people have shitty exes. If they have one shitty ex and they can make the case for why this is a terrible relationship and they were on the receiving end of the abuse, all right. You don't have to be on your best behavior at all times. You don't have to only say nice things about people who are out of your life. But if they have nothing nice to say about anyone they've ever dated, they're the common denominator. They're the problem. And those are two early warning signs that you can watch out for. But I'm sorry. There's no magic word. There's no incantation. There's no pheromone. There's no good person dog whistle. You have to use your best judgment and learn through trial and error and shitty relationships how to spot the red flags, how to spot the warning signs, how to spot the shitty people, and then don't return their calls dump them. Ah, God damn it. I went over two minutes. I hope you guys will allow it. Nancy doesn't cut it. I'm out of town this week, so we're going to have to skip the tweets this week. Very sorry about that. Let's get right to your response calls. Hi, Dan. This is a response call to episode 661 for the caller who had a openly religious, I guess more religious, uh, co-worker. If this person is in a managerial position or supervises these people, um, she could totally just kind of say, hey, we're wanting to show support for, like, the LGBT community and maybe ask that each of her, like, subordinates or employees under her put up something for support if they feel comfortable. And so providing, like, a rainbow sticker or some sort of, like, 
rainbow paraphernalia that they don't have to necessarily take, but if they would like to, she can offer it to them. Um, so if she feels uncomfortable about having this conversation with her coworker about uh, maybe his Bible verses, she could definitely just kind of do a subtle nudge and say, hey, I got these rainbow stickers at Pride. Um, I was wondering if you wanted any for your cubicle. I'm handing them out to her coworkers, something like that. It's a really kind of subtle way of doing things if she doesn't feel comfortable in terms of confrontation. Hey, Dan and audience. Just wanted to say I have a recommendation for everybody. Um, sort of DIY lube, especially for gay men. So highly recommend flaxseed gel. Uh, you'll see a lot of videos on it for hair care, but you take a quarter cup of flax seeds, you boil it in two cups of water, and it makes for an amazing water-based lubricant. Super cheap, good for you, no petrochemicals. All right, especially if you're doing anal sex, go for it. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the person who was looking for real lesbian porn to watch with her partner. If you search for queer porn on sites like Pornhub, you will find actual lesbians performing actual sex acts, not to mention non-binary people and trans porn that is not sissy fetish stuff for straight guys. Also, check out cyberdyke.com. There's lots of resources there. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. And if you want us to read one of your tweets on the show, remember to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. The deadline for entering my Dirty Little Film Fest hump is right around the corner. If you want to be part of the one and only porn festival made by the people for the people that celebrate sexual creativity in all forms of sexual and gender identity and expression, get humping. Grab your friends, grab your lovers, grab a camera. It can even be your phone and make a film five minutes or less for our festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out more about the 20000 bucks in cash prizes and how you can submit your dirty little homies. Follow me on Twitter at fake Dan Savage. Follow Justin Lay Miller on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. And of course, be sure to listen to the Waves podcast. That's right. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for downloading.